Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And today, it's time to stay indoors and talk about all the anime that we watched during the lovely spring season. And there sure is a lot of it. Oh man, we have so much to get through. Uh, both of us watched a lot of shows, and I think we have a, quite a bit to say about them. So let's let's get to that as soon as possible. I have very little news to say, just very quick sort of stuff to get to. First up, we have a few uh, game releases real quick. We have um, an official English release of Island, which is the source visual novel for the anime airing this summer season. We have Yuno, uh, which was the first proper visual novel getting a re-release from uh, Spike Chunsoft in English uh, next year for PS4 and PC, as well as a release for a Wii-exclusive FMV visual novel called 428 Shibuya Scramble, which is slated for September of this year. I thought it was August. I think it's September, but either way, it's soon. And it's cool because there is a scenario for the game written by the author of Fate, who then went on to do a spinoff of his scenario in an anime called Canon, which just looks a lot like Fate characters in a very non-Fate situations. Hmm. That should be interesting to see because, like, I feel like we've had the context for- we or we've had canon for a while, we just haven't had the context for it. I think it's pronounced Kanan. Is it Kanan? Okay. Yeah, it's got the, the second A in it. Okay, you're right, yeah. Yeah, that should be interesting to see. And then, uh, continuing the anime game, uh, renaissance that we're experiencing, Yuna and the Haunted Hot Springs is getting a roguelike. Yes, the most fitting genre for a horny series. Yeah, I guess it's like a roguelike dungeon crawler. There's like an original story. And boy, howdy, what a weird choice for like that. But you know, like anime spinoff games have always been weird. Like I'm really glad that they're willing to branch off into weird genres instead of just arena fighters. Yeah, that that's nice. Yeah. Because that's also the hope with, like, um, what was it last time? The Tokyo Ghoul one that it says, like, it's survival action or whatever. I'm really hoping for some, like, Resident Evil-ass, like, sneaking and, like, short action bursts kind of stuff. It seems like there are a lot of opportunities for that coming up. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, then, Right Stuff announced that they're releasing a bunch of older Gundam series on Blu-ray. Uh, G Gundam Among There. And then they're also doing uh, Gundam Seed, like a like a super ultra edition next year that includes a new, like improved English dub along with the old English dub. Huh. Yeah. So it's it's weird, um, but it seems like a neat idea, especially for I guess one of the bigger Gundam series, like especially for the Western fans, that they would redo it, like. Not only is there, like, a better version, but there's also the original version, which people probably have a lot of nostalgia for. I would imagine so. Old dubs do have that sort of, that sort of old, nice nostalgia to them. Yeah, that's why G Gundam's not being touched, I guess. God bless. 
It's it's perfect as is. Bless G Gundam's dub. Then we got an announcement that I think we all expected, which is that Viz got the Golden Wind anime, so we're for sure going to see it in the West. But also they got the Diamond is Unbreakable manga and live action film for release in the West. And the uh, Diamond is Unbreakable dub is starting right after the uh, Stardust Crusaders dub is ending. Oh yeah, on Toonami, that's right. That's, wow. Just, oh, lots of JoJo's everywhere. Uh, people weren't sure about what was going to happen with Part 4 since it didn't have, like, a Jojonium release. But we're getting it, so that should be exciting. I wonder if it'll see some sort of, like, special type edition because of it, like a repackaging. I could see that happening. And then, yeah, we're getting the live-action film as well, which, I mean, I didn't hear great things about it, but it's still, like, an interesting thing, especially from the mind of, like, uh, Takashi Miike. Yeah. And then we have the official announcement that the spider isekai is getting an anime, because why not? Why not? I've at least heard the spider isekai is, uh, is better? Well, it would be hard to do a lot of the isekai tropes if the main character is a spider. Also, the main character isn't a guy, if I remember right. Oh, okay. Also, uh, with a name like So I'm a Spider, So What, it seems like it has, I don't know, a little bit of self-awareness to not just be more of a bog-standard kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, it is a lady. You're right. Yeah. It's nice that we're getting some of the more unique takes on the genre. Exactly. One day we'll get the TQ authors, and that'll be even, you know, that'll be its whole thing. And we can just look forward to, you know, the fact that isekai as a genre is, like, branching out past sort of its uh, more stereotypical roots. Well, it may have been I doing mean, that all along. We maybe just haven't seen it. I mean, more so because they had to get really creative to get people to start buying them. <laughs> That's right. They had, to make, they had to make people spiders. Or vending machines. Or vending machines, or slimes. Or hot springs. Wait. Oh, right, wait. The guy turns into a hot springs? Yes. Oh. Hmm, maybe I don't remember that one. It's bad, it doesn't matter, but I know it exists. Oh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that it's not good, but, like, wow. <laughs> it, look, it's, it's still one of the things you go and you're like, huh. And then last on the list is uh, Studio Trigger started a Patreon for their animation stuff. And people who are maybe more in the know with the industry have probably talked about this already. But my, my only thoughts could be like, man, I really hope since they're so above what their goals were for like streaming and stuff that they would pay their animators <laughs> more. Same here. It doesn't look positive because like their Patreon thing is like, yeah, we really want to do merchandising stuff, and also maybe pay the people who work for us, so we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. But that's it, because we need, we need to get to the anime. We really do. And to start us off, let's start off with one that we both, I don't think went into the season thinking we were going to watch, but we both made it to the end, and it was a really, a really good ride the whole time. Oh, yeah. And that's Megalobox, the 50th anniversary anime project for Ashita no Joe, or Tomorrow's Joe. Yep. And it's a weird 
thing for us in the West, given that I think we only ever got the second anime based off of Ashita no Cho. Like, the second half of the anime project is the only thing that ever got licensed, which is just a weird, yeah. weird thing. But Megalobox is its own distinct story that takes cues from the original story, but really takes it in a different direction, a more positive, hopeful direction, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and I'm, I'm very glad it did. Yeah, Megalobox, rather than being the story of sort of a tragic character sort of forced into this life. It's it's more of an underdog story about someone kind of climbing up from lower than low class life and, you know, being able to prove his worth amongst people via boxing, specifically megalobox, which is a form of boxing where everyone wears uh, like motorized gauntlets to make the punches more intense. Yeah. And uh, our main character, to uh, sell himself, fights without said uh, mecha gauntlets. Right, this is not the original plan. He goes in like, oh, I'm going to get these brand new gauntlets and be able to fight. But they just bust up because of some things that happen. And he ends up deciding, oh, yeah, my gimmick is going to be that I don't fight with gear. So he's like, you know, legit. Maybe we should give a bit more context to the to like the beginning of how this like the second okay yes the idea is we have junk dog yeah who is an underground fighter and really he's he's got a manager um he's got a manager nanbu who basically puts him into rigged fights consistently he gets paid to throw fights yeah and eventually junk dog gets sick of this and sort of stumbles upon a chance to really make himself known and sort of, you know, have genuine fights where he can show off his talent because he knows he's better than these rigged matches. He's just ended up in a real shit place in life. Yeah, he, he kind of gets this idea after a chance encounter with the current champ of megaloboxing, Yuri, who decides to fight him for seemingly no reason. Yeah, and Yuri is, like, sort of the opposite of Joe. He is living high on the hog. He's sort of like a, a sponsored fighter for sort of the biggest tech company in the area, Shirado. And he's got, like, integrated gear where, like, the gauntlets that he uses are straight into his body. Like, they are connected to, like, his nerves and stuff. Yeah, he's got cyborg arms. Yeah, and so... They sort of set up this rivalry between the two of them because they are both on opposite sides of this, like, you know, lot in life. And it's all about Junk Dog, who, with his illegal ID card, calls himself Joe. He decides that he's going to fight his way up and beat Yuri to prove how much worth he has, even if he is basically nothing to society. Also so he doesn't get killed by the Yakuza. Right, there. there's also an issue with the Yakuza. There's a lot of kind of, like, seedy stuff that goes on with the situation behind Joe. But, like, as a story, it's, you know, it's kind of, he's put up against insurmountable odds, and he continues to find ways around them, not by, like, cheating or anything that you could see as, like, a deus ex machina kind of thing. It's all through, like, him just 
being really good at what he does that he doesn't need like the gear and he doesn't need a real gimmick behind him. He's just good at boxing. Yeah, it's him showing that he doesn't need to uh, to resort to tricks or throw fights or whatever. He's legitimately real good and he basically polishes himself and shows his stuff. Yeah, and he ends up running into an, a lot of characters who are sort of like him and sort of they've they've fallen into their lot in life. They're all sort of downtrodden for different circumstances. There's like a war vet who lost his legs who continues to fight and sort of through their interactions with Joe, they come to realize that sort of like the necessity of their own self-worth and the way that like that they're acting and the way that they use boxing as sort of like, you know, this metaphor for how they feel in real life, whether it's like downtrodden or things like that, kind of comes into play. And Joe sort of like spins that in a positive direction because he's putting everything on the line for this just to prove his worth. He's not willing to accept that he is the bottom rung of society. He's willing to keep fighting against his so-called fate. Yeah, it's so it, yeah, it's really cool. The only weird thing about the show is um a stylistic choice by the director to basically draw everything at high resolution, shrink it to low re- resolution and then make it bigger again for the release to kind of give that old school anime feel. Yeah. It's not like it's not like jarring, but I think it's just like a weird stylistic choice. I think ultimately it kind of works out because it is sort of a dirty story, but it's like still something that you have to get used to. Yeah, I I think it works because it makes it feel like some kind of long lost anime that just reemerged from like ten years ago. Yeah, no, definitely it definitely it has like a point to it. It has like a, a stylistic charm to it. It's just something that I think you need to be prepared for when watching it, because it will look like something's messed up with the video. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think we also should talk about the soundtrack and how really good it is. Yeah, so all the soundtrack is sort of like like hip-hop in a lot of ways. Like, they have char- they also have characters in the show who actually do, like, raps, which is really cool. And the localizing, like, the localizing team that did the subtitles were nice enough to, when the raps came up, actually make it so that the lyrics flow and rhyme, which is really nice. Yeah, that ruled that they did that with both raps. Yeah, but like all of the music is sort of like hip-hop, very percussion-heavy sort of stuff to sort of fit with sort of the um, the more aggressive nature of the the actual source material. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, really good and atmospheric and stuff, and it's thankfully available to buy if you want to. Yeah, I think the action and the music and everything, like, really fit well together into this really great sort of package of an anime. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good anime about fighting fate and defying what society has set out for you. Yeah, and it and it tells a really nice, complete story through its 13 episodes. Like, you feel yeah. satisfied by the end. Yeah, for sure, and... Sometimes that's pretty rare in anime, is getting a nice, satisfying conclusion. Yeah, and so it's it's really cool, honestly. Like, it has a really great aesthetic to it. Yeah, it's strong. Yeah, and like, just as characters, like, you know to root for them. Like, I think in a lot of ways, with like, Ashita no Joe, you're not really given, like, Joe is not, like, very much a hero. 
in the in in a traditional sense, but you get the idea that Junk Dog Joe and Megalobox is someone you really want to root for because of everything surrounding the character. And all of the bad guys, all of the people he fights are pretty similar as well. There aren't a lot of like cut and dry bad people in this show. Yeah, it's it it does a nice stuff to give you perspective on uh on every character in the show or at least every major character. Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a really fun ride. I was really happy with it. Same here. I I definitely recommend it to folks. Oh, for sure. Then, keeping up with the shonen style, we have the end of Food Wars season 3. All right. So yeah, um Food Wars continues to be itself, which is very horny reactions to very delicious food. We got to see Soma rematch against the guy who beat him before, Hayama. That was that was pretty fun because uh, they got to cook bear, and uh, it was really <laughs> yeah, it was really amusing seeing uh, seeing our hero try and figure out ways to use the bear and Hayama making uh, bear nuggies. <laughs> do they say that in the subtitles? No, they do not. But it's literally okay. fried bear nuggets. Okay, I would believe that a show like that would use the word nuggies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's still a really fun sort of show. Uh, at least I think it is. Uh, another nice thing about that, uh, that this half of season three did is that we got, you know, more perspective about Erina, who is the uh, the heroine of the show. And she we basically get like what her full story is we get why she acted the way she does and how she's struggling to grow and how she finally becomes more on the good guy's side and she becomes a lot better of a character than she has been and it's it's really nice um other stuff is that uh they kind of end it at a really awkward spot they end it during the really big really long final battle against the the evil forces of central and it's it's kind of awkward in that, and that I kind of hope it gets a season four, so that way we can actually see the end of this arc. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like a weird thing, especially after, like, season three took a break. You thought maybe, oh, it's gonna, like, complete an arc, but if it stops in the middle, that's a little, it's a little disappointing. Yeah, it's really weird. I, I kind of expected them to end it, like, before the big final battle and not during <laughs> it, so that way they would have the big final battle be all of season four, but, uh. I, I mean, I guess. And, but yeah, uh, I, I still enjoy the show for what it's worth. Uh, it's still fun and goofy and horny. But, uh, you know, I enjoy watching all this animated. I, it's got a good voice cast. and It's just a goofy, fun show to watch, at least for me. And uh, I hope it does well enough to, uh, to actually get a season four and see the end of this arc and that. Because at the very least, the conclusion of the arc is very satisfying for what our <laughs> protagonist does. Alright, I mean, it seems like it's a pretty popular franchise. I, I couldn't imagine it not getting a season four at this point. Yeah. It feels like it's solving the main issue I had with this arc in the manga, which is the, the slow pacing of it. But mm. it, it feels a lot smoother in anime form and yeah that's what i like about it is that it's it, it doesn't feel very meandering like the manga can at times mm -hmm. i think that you know that comes down to the fact that food war season three can wait however long it needs to but you gotta you know weekly put out chapters for the manga so yeah sometimes that sort of thing just ends up happening
Yeah, it's it's nice having anime with good pacing for once compared to a manga than bad pacing. <laughs> Especially since it so often seems to go the other way. Yeah, I, I still enjoy the show, but I, it's it's not recommendable because it's inherently horny. It's just some, yeah, it's it's one of those things that's like, unfortunately, it has a caveat, even though everything else is like, inoffensive. Yeah, it's it's very fun with itself, and it's very fun seeing everyone react to basic cooking concepts. Alright. Um, and then we have My Hero Academia Season 3, which, man, it really popped out of a serious arc and right back into one. Yeah, it did. God. It wants you to believe, oh, summer vacation, like summer camp. That seems like it's going to be a lot of fun and have a lot of great space for characters develop. And then, nope, all the villains drop in. Uh, there were some really good moments in in this season, I gotta say. I, I've been waiting for that stuff to be animated for a while. Yeah, there, there are some really strong fights and spaces for development, especially for uh, Deku, just as the uh, wielder of one for all and like just his development with his quirk and his abilities and not constantly destroying his body well he does but not as consistently he didn't do that because he wanted to he did that because he had to right it it wasn't like oh i accidentally don't know how to control my powers and my entire body just exploded yeah it's it's something that happened in today's episode but it it actually marks a good point because Deku just starts it's starting to develop into his own version of what of a hero instead of just being all might but smaller. Right, he's like figuring out his place. Now that he kind of has control of power is now like, oh well, how am I going to use it? And what developments can I take? Yeah, especially with his previous injuries preventing him from being all might too. And his continued injuries uh almost preventing him from living. That too. Uh, did you enjoy uh, what happened with Bakugo this season? Uh, <laughs> Bakugo's real fun. <laughs> um, so, uh, so as a quick overview of what happens is they have a summer training camp for Class A out in the woods. And unfortunately, uh, the villains find out about where they are and sort of take over in sort of like this kind of like organized uh, situation. They sort of separate a bunch of students because... What they're trying to do is kidnap Bakugo. <laughs> like, that's their A plan. Yep. And they do that because, I guess, Bakugo's just a real bastard. They do that because they wanted to make him do a Sasuke. Right, and and so as he's kidnapped, he's just constantly like, uh, nope, and he's a real asshole to all the villains. And it's just, you know, <laughs> Bakugo's fun. Bakugo's really fun to watch because he is, like... He is everything you expect out of that sort of rival Sasuke sort of character, but his immoral compass is so well aligned that he's just like, uh, I may be a, <laughs> a bad person, but I also know not to be a villain. I like winning. I like beating up villains and feeling good about it. That, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that as a villain. Right, and the discussion of him like as someone else who always looked up to All Might, his view of it is like, Deku sees this, like, this is heroism, this is what you do, you save people, and Bakugo sees, like, yeah, you just uh, kill the shit out of all the bad guys. Yeah, it, it rules that they have these, uh, these different views of All Might, that All Might has had this effect on, completely different effect on our main character and his rival. Yeah, it's, it's fun, and I think that 
that makes him a really entertaining character to follow. Yeah, for sure. The the new villains they introduced are, I think in general, pretty fun and have like diverse powers. They're a little hit or miss for me personally. Like, I don't know, Lizard Man's fine. The guy that just has like big lips, maybe not so much. The guy who has a gun. Like, there are, there are so many just like weird character ideas that are like interesting from a villain perspective at the very least. I like the Lizard Man because he's a tryhard edgelord. Yeah, I know, that's cool. I don't, maybe it's just because of how early it is into, like, the anime is in comparison to the manga, but I don't quite get the love for Blood Girl yet. I think people just like her because she's a Yandere. Oh, great. Well, great. Okay. I kind of assumed that much, but I thought maybe something else happened later. Nope, she's just a Yandere. And then following the Bakugo retrieval arc, we... End up with the introduction and then, like, maybe removal of the major villain, uh, all for one. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a hell of a thing. That's a, that, that's a wild fight. Sort of, like, as everyone is trying to go save Bakugo, including a bunch of students who are doing it sort of illegally, sort of against the guidance of their, uh, their adult supervisors, they go to try to save Bakugo as a bunch of, like, full-fledged heroes do. And All for One pops out, who is, who has been set up as sort of the big bad, like this, you know, this mastermind who steals powers from others and sort of morphs them to do villainy. Yeah, he, he is the archenemy of the wielder of, uh, of one for all. Yeah. And it's a, it's a wild fight. Just because I think in a lot of ways, like, All for One has a cool concept behind him, which is, I can merge these powers together to do just crazy stuff. And that's really exciting against All Might, who is, ah, even generously, kind of a one-trick pony. He punch and kick good. He punch and kick extremely good. Right, and so, like, it's, it's about being able to kind of overcome that sort of adversity, and, you know, he does his United States of Smash, like, a very strong attack, and I think what's nice about this conflict is not only does it show, like, oh yeah, All Might is totally a hero worth looking after, but, like, it has now removed him from the equation in a way that means he's no longer the backup for everyone, because so much of these other stories is, like, Everyone kind of gets their shit rocked, and All Might comes in to save the day. He can't do that anymore, so suddenly everyone else is being asked to step up and develop, and they're working on that through the start of this second half of the season. Yeah, the loss of All Might as a functioning hero is a thing that defines a lot of stuff, at least so far in the manga, going forward, that everyone has to adapt to the loss of All Might, both the heroes because they don't have this their big symbol of power anymore, and the villains who are using this as a as a vacuum to to grow in power. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like I like what it's doing. I just I'm hoping there's a little more room to breathe between the next big arc and what's happening now, because it's, like, just a little more time for the characters to just develop and sort of do their own thing without the threat of villains is appreciated. Oh, well, you, you don't have to worry about that in the, at least the next arc going forward. It's, it's Oh, cool. 
Yeah, it's it's not, um, oh no, the villains attack again. It's more of, uh, the next arc is uh, everybody's trying to get their, uh, their hero licenses. Okay, so yeah, that seems like it'll be fun and have a little more time for, like, everyone just to breathe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tense situation, but it's not tense in the way that the previous two bits were. Right, because it's definitely, like, as soon as they got to summer training, almost immediately everything went to shit. Yeah. And so, yeah, this would be fun. It It's definitely starting off as fun as just, like, everyone has to figure out what their ultimate move is. <laughs> like, everyone has to pick their supers. Yeah, that that was a great episode. Yeah, it's very, very charming and just the way that they all kind of like try to figure it out. And <laughs> I think it's really funny that Deku looks at All Might and he's like, ah, oh, that's the guy who punches a lot. I'm going to be like that. And then when All Might's like, try thinking of something on your own, he's like, I'm going to kick a lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is charmingly simple in a way that like, I'm sure will develop into something more, but just like, if I can't punch then kick is just, like, a really funny, like, thing to hinge an episode on. Deku is really smart, but also really stupid, and I like that a lot about him. Oh, God bless him. And then, next up, uh, Caligula, the- how- how do I even- how do I intro this? <laughs> it's- not Persona. It's definitely not Persona. <laughs> okay. Because, again, this is from the writer of the first two Persona games? Yeah, it is. Okay, I I'll explain. <laughs> I'll, I'll send up Caligula. <laughs> so, Caligula is a show based on a game that has really bad gameplay, but it has a really interesting story concept. <laughs> okay, so Caligula is about a bunch of people of all age ranges and such that are trapped in virtual high school by uh definitely not Hatsune Miku so that they can find the happiness that they can't find in the real world and uh our protagonists don't think that uh they they don't like escapism so they're going to uh to figure out a way to break out of this virtual reality and go back to the real world and try and fight against their uh their tragic situations uh-huh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And everybody does the Persona thing of, oh, I use my my negative emotions to, to summon weapons such as a giant gun. Yeah, so is that the main character who has the giant gun? That is not the main character who has the giant gun. Okay, because one man just has a comically large revolver. <laughs> no, that is not the main character. The main character has a smaller gun that do that is not... <laughs> is it regular-sized? No, it is still a large gun, but it is not a giant revolver. <laughs> okay. And how did how did the anime adaptation deal with the story and the interesting ideas? Uh, I I think it actually worked out pretty well. It it took a bit for it to find it, kind of find its groove, but I think it actually worked out pretty well. They they managed to, to throw out some decent storytelling with uh with the characters and even though there was an episode that was, oh, it's time to tell everyone our backstories because I guess we all don't trust each other, so we should tell everybody our tragic backstories. And I kind of appreciated that everybody had kind of came from different places and that thankfully not everyone was literally just a high schooler. There were some actual adults in there, but also a middle school child. <laughs> okay. But 
It definitely felt like a show that was about having the courage to face your your current situation is in life. You can't just hide from it forever. You need to have the courage to fight against it. So that way you can, you know, keep moving forward and keep progressing with your life. And I think it does a pretty alright job of it. One of my favorite things about the show... Well, okay. One of my favorite ridiculous things about the show is that, of course, not Miku sings, but the lyrics are so hilariously on the nose, it's incredible. Okay. <laughs> like, it is, it is very blunt about telling you the metaphors of the show. Cool. And then the the thing I actually like is the big twist involving the actual main character Ritsu. Uh the the main character Ritsu is this weird guy who likes talking about philosophy with his friends and people think it's really interesting for some reason, but of course that makes sense. He's in virtual reality. He has NPCs to listen to him and make him think he's cool. Right. But uh the big twist about him is that uh in reality, he's he doesn't actually look like how he does in the show. He looks like his uh, his boss, who was working on making uh, not Miku and other Vocaloids, and he basically kind of um, communicated with not Miku, and not Miku kind of caused the whole situation based on him talking with him. So everything's his fault. <laughs> but um. He looks like his uh his boss in the uh the virtual world because his boss is cool and popular and social and he actually wanted to be cool and popular and social just like a person playing one of the Persona games. Whoa. <laughs> but it's about him kind of, you know, acknowledging that people need to define what happiness is for themselves. You can't just have someone predefine your own happiness. It means different things for different people and you can't just use escapism to hide from it forever. You have to you have to figure out what makes you happy and fight for it. I guess it's uh it's a real rough around the edges show, especially like animation wise. They don't do a lot of really fancy fighting with their goofy ass weapons because they do clearly do not have the ability to do that stuff for a lot. But it's a it's a pretty interesting show with interesting themes, and I I kind of like how it concludes. Okay, yeah, it sounds like it's pretty clumsy, but it's earnest when it comes down to it. Yeah, it definitely tries its best to to do what it does, and it's definitely a better experience than playing the game. Mm, I'm sure. I think it sounds like some of the things you're talking about would make more sense in the context of the game, where like people would just have time to go through their backstories instead of just dump them on you in an episode. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, not the worst of both worlds, but also not the best of both worlds. Like, it doesn't really take advantage of the of the change in uh, medium. I mean, I think it does. There's a couple of sequences that are, like, animated completely differently than other parts of the show that kind of take place in Ritsu's mindscape. And I think it does a pretty good job of, you know, using that at least to its advantage. Okay. But yeah, I overall I enjoyed watching Caligula. It's it's a rough show, but it's definitely it's definitely an interesting take on the whole persona idea of being in high school and you can't just use high school escapism forever. Okay. Interesting. All right. So overall positive on it despite the clunkiness. Yeah, very much so. Okay. 
So then, next, the weird one here. Sword Art Online Alternative Gungale Online, which is a Sword Art Online side story, as done by the team behind Kino's Journey. And it's it's pretty good. Like, it's a lot of fun. Maybe because there aren't the same stakes as, like, a Sora Online, and the writing seems better, or at least more entertaining. Yeah, I've, I've heard that it's a very low-stakes sort of series. Yeah, so the main idea behind this is that well, Gungale Online is, like, one of the games in Sword Art Online, but this focuses on this um, event in the game that's basically, like, a battle royale sort of thing, like a player unknown's battlegrounds or, like, a Fortnite. It's called a Squad Jam, and it's just about this this girl named Karen who, in real life, is very shy and reserved because she's so tall and people kind of treat her differently because of that. And so she joins this game because it allows her to be kind of this cute, smaller character and, you know, fit more of what she feels comfortable as. And it's partially about her becoming more comfortable with who she is in her own real body. And she meets a girl named uh, Pito Hui, who is sort of this this more prominent gamer in Gungale Online. And the story sort of develops to be partially about her. She It turns out that while she's been, like, mentoring Karen on how to be good at this game, she's also sort of had this, this hope for death. Like, she was working on the beta for the original Sword Art Online and did not log in fast enough to enter the death game version from the original anime and is really, really mad about that because she wants to die. She seems to be, like, suicidal in in a passive way. Oh! Yeah, so it's like, I really wanted to be in there so that I could kill and die. (laughs) And... So she's been, like, trying to figure out the situation to do with Gungale Online, and what it ends up being is she's going to enter one of the squad jams, and if she dies, she is going to kill herself and, like, her sort of boyfriend, kind of? Like, boyfriend, like, slash uh, her secretary, whose name is uh, G in in Gungale Online. And so the story shifts from just like an acceptance of Karen to sort of an acceptance of the self on the part of Pitohui. So basically it's just a it's a 12 episode anime about how maybe you need to chill a little bit, gamers. That sounds like a good anime then. It's it's fun and I think the action is well done. And sort of, like, you get to see a lot of these characters outside the game as well and the way they interact, and they're fun and sort of, like... So in the Squad Jam, you can go up with, like, up to six people, and Pitohi ends up in, like, two-person teams. But there's, like, a group of six, like, middle schoolers who are all in the same, like, dance club that, in order to, like, increase their compatibility and sort of become friends, they started playing, and so, like... Karen meets them, and they start playing together. It's like a fun little story, just combining all these different characters together, and ultimately telling, like, a pretty heartwarming story about not being so obsessed with dying and looking to what you have 
in life. It's it's fun. Huh. It's very goofy, and there are a lot of times in the story where they where they consistently say like, "What do you think this is, Sword Art Online?" Like, like little tiny jabs at the original story. It feels like. I'm glad. I'm glad that they're that finally Sword Art Online is good. It just needed to not have Kirito in it. But yeah, it's it's a fun little story. I think I think that um, it has a lot of charm to it, and like overall, just the action is well put together, and it's like. Got some genuinely funny moments to it that are really, like, just, it's a lot of fun to watch. And so, I wasn't sure going into the season, but, like, after hearing so many people rave about it, like, it's definitely worth a watch, I think. Nice. Like, even if it's not your sort of thing, I think you can see the charm behind it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Especially as they get to um, Karen's real-life friend, Miyu, who is sort of, like, also ends up playing, like, a tiny uh, girl avatar, but also dual-wields, like, barreled grenade launchers. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just, like, a bunch of- it's, like, a bunch of action cliches through this, like, little tiny anime girl. It's great. That's great. It it sounds like the the way to make Sword Art Online good is to make it not take itself so seriously. Yeah, it's just fun, and it, like, removes the stakes in a way that's, like, Oh, the problem is with the people, not with the basic structure of the story. Yeah, I think that's good. That I like character-driven stories like that. Yeah. And then, as another sort of spin-off, we have Record of Grandcrest War, which is now finished, correct? It is finished, thank God. So overall, not positive on it, or...? Um... It's... It's like a solidly written and animated show, but it's just not entertaining to me. Okay. Like, it's good, but it was- but I had to, like, binge through the last batch of episodes. Because it's, like, it's still a generic fantasy anime, and, like, to compare it to another one I watched, uh, Grimoire of Zero, like, it's not as interesting as Grimoire of Zero. In the sense that I think it tried to make its cast too big, in the sense that I couldn't remember who some of the people were some of the time. Whereas Grimoire of Zero had a very small core cast of three, and their banter drove the show forward. But here it's very much a story about the world, not a a story about a group of characters, if that makes sense. Right, sure, okay. You feel like the scope was maybe too big for the time it got, or the way that it spent its time? I I mean, it's more that because it's, like, it's because it's about, like, the entirety of the continent and all of these nations and the leader- and the leaders of said nations and all of these different people, and uh, it- it has a very bloated cast, with some characters, like, only showing up for a couple of episodes and then leaving the story, but- the story tries to make it so that everyone is an important character to the framework of the country and such. Okay. But it's it's very much a show stuffed full of, like, every JRPG trope that you could possibly think <laughs> of. And it just kind of works them in a very believable way, I guess? But it just feels like they don't focus on, like, they don't give a lot of focus time on a lot of characters for them to really develop. Like, it feels more like a story about the world. I I said that before, but 
it's basically like you get these these bare bones ideas of who these characters are, and while a couple of them are explored, and you get a bigger picture of some of the characters, because there are so many characters, it doesn't feel very focused on even its core cast. Mmm, alright. But I still think it's a neat show. It does some neat concepts with its its basic setting. And I okay, I did not enjoy watching it towards the end, but it's a it's a pretty <laughs> neat <laughs> it's a pretty neat show. I just got I just got sort of tired of it by the end because it, it it did a thing where it kept like it felt going after the conflict was resolved because it was like, oh hey, everything's great now. We managed to have the two sides of the war resolve itself. Oh, but wait, there was a secret third party manipulating everything the whole time, and now we have to kill them because they're trying to control the entire country with everything. Sure, and there are perfectly fine stories that do drag on like that, where it's like, oh, we we needed to have an extra arc, I guess, but it doesn't feel like it's like the stakes are the same because you feel like you've already accomplished something within the story. Yeah, that's definitely a good way to put it. Yeah, alright. So, competent, but it drags, is ultimately what comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fine. Alright. And then, old show. Very old show. Back, it's Legend of the Galactic Heroes. And, did, you started watching this. I watched one episode, and then I just didn't watch any more, but I'm fine <laughs> with that because I had too many other shows that I was watching this season. Yeah, no, that's that's the thing about this season. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to find time to go back because even after watching, I don't know, 10 shows, I feel like I there's still more that I didn't get to here. Yeah. But yeah, so Legend of the Galactic Heroes is a show for dads. It feels like the sort of show that is like trying really hard to be like a live action show. In just the way that it's framed, in the way that it's paced, like, everything about it feels like, oh, this could just be real actors, and there wouldn't be too much you'd have to do to really change anything. It's very grounded. Huh. And so for the, the people who maybe don't know what Legend of the Galactic Heroes is, it's basically a story of uh, two interstellar states in the distant future we have the Galactic Empire, which is very unsubtly, like, Germanic and, like, you know, kind of monarchic. Like, it definitely gives off a lot of, like, eh, you know, uh, less than subtle vibes about who they're trying to be. And then the Democratic Free Planets Alliance, which is more of, like, a, a mixed-race sort of, like, space colony that are stuck in this never-ending war. The Free Planets Alliance broke off from the Galactic Empire because of sort of this tyrannical rule, and ever since they've been at war trying to... the With the Galactic Empire trying to take back the Free Planets Alliance, the Free Planets Alliance trying to liberate everyone from the monarchy of the Galactic Empire. And the major character focuses are two rivals more or less in the army for each of these uh each of these states so on one side we have reinhardt von lohengram from the galactic empire who is sort of this young hotshot uh, military captain who 
like really pisses off all of the old guard in the country because he's sort of like he does a lot more like risky strategies to try and outplay the opponent and they keep working which is why everyone's so mad at him is he keeps getting all these accolades for doing things that other people never thought of or hadn't considered because they seem too dangerous and on the other side we have a uh, young winley who is a soldier who is very smart because he's like a history buff. He looks into a lot of old wars and sort of how they work and uses that for his military strategy. But he so desperately doesn't want to be in the military. He just wants to be able to like study and learn. But because he's so good at military uh, tactics, the the army just keeps drafting him in. And it's like, well, they're never going to finish this without me. So I guess I'm stuck here. I just want to be a history teacher. Please leave me alone. Basically, but it's like uh, part of the Free Plants Alliance is he basically went to school on an army um, army scholarship, so he has to work for them. Ah. And like Reinhardt really wants to get higher and higher up because he hates that the monarchy that he's under basically stole his sister from him and forced her into a marriage with the current king. So he's sort of like trying to climb the ranks to eventually take over and sort of reinvent the Galactic Empire. So we have one guy on the side who wants to eventually gain all power and take over, and then on the other side we have a dude who really just doesn't want to be here, but is forced to because he is the smartest of, uh, of the army group. And huh. so yeah, it's, it's like a really well-done character drama and sort of war story that isn't focused on action, it's so much focused on the political aspect of all of it. A lot of stories about sort of trying to take advantage of certain swings in the battle and how that doesn't work out, and the way that sort of like the war economy can affect decisions and cause things to go awry for the Free Planets Alliance because they want to get um, citizen support, so they keep doing more and more things outside of the scope of what they have. Like, it's a very fascinating, but it's also very dry. Again, because it's filmed kind of like a, a live action thing, there isn't a lot of like pizzazz. There isn't a lot of flair to it. It's a lot of people talking to each other and discussing military tactics and politique. Like, it's not for everyone, but if you are the kind of person that likes sort of the boring dad dramas. I think Legend of the Galactic <laughs> Heroes is really well done. I think it's well written and just like the pacing of it and everything is really well done. So one unfortunate thing is the way that they're doing this is they have this 12 episode season and then later on in the year, they're going to do three, four episode movies for the second season. So we're kind of caught at the end of a cliffhanger here after 12 episodes and who knows when we'll end up seeing the the season's worth of movie that they've made. Ah. Yeah, so that, that's a little unfortunate, but still I think it's like a strong narrative. And I think just the polish and shine that um, Production IG has put on this may make it an easier watch than if you went with the older OVA version of Legend of the Galactic Heroes. So it sounds like a pretty solid show, but it just doesn't make good use of the medium it's in. Um, I mean, it doesn't in that it's going to make people wait for it. Yeah, like, it feels like all of this was planned. It's just annoying. 
like oh that's not what i meant i meant more like oh like you you say it could have been a live action show that's what i mean oh i see um i'm not sure i don't know how the original like ovas handled it like i think it's just that's the style of writing that the original books are is sort of the plotting heavy sort of political sort of movement kind of stuff it doesn't take advantage necessarily of any of the things the animation does, but it doesn't feel like it has to. Like, it doesn't feel lacking in that particular way. Okay. So, I think it could be live action. I think in anime, it's fine. Like, it's, it's not so much that it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like it fits the medium. It just feels like they don't really do anything with it, which, I don't know. That depends on you on how you think that that's good or bad. Yeah, I mean, like... As someone of you who watches a lot of anime that does have a lot of talking, there are ways that you can animate it to make talk to make even talking interesting, and it sounds like it doesn't use any of those tricks. Uh, yeah, not in the same way. It's just a lot. It's a it's a lot of very straight talking. Okay. Um, though <laughs> the one thing they do that seems like ridiculous, even as far as sci-fi stuff goes, is there's a there's a part near the end where there's this like young hotshot who's trying to look really good in front of his superiors so he's suggesting sort of this really absurd sort of like command and capture sort of um plan and when he's told no he sort of like tries to fight back by like throwing shade at everyone but if people fight back enough he just literally starts foaming from the mouth and passes out and they explain <laughs> this as oh He's one of those people that as soon as he hears something that he doesn't like, his brain just flips and shit. <laughs> like, it's one, it's one really weird, out-of-place thing from the series, but it's, it's funny. Um, yeah, I, I do like Legend of the Galactic Heroes, but unless you're willing to sit through some real political-ass political drama, it's not going to be much more than that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and Hiroyuki Sawano did the music, the the opening theme for it, and it sounds like it's straight out of like an '80s drama. <laughs> like it's not like Sawano at all. It's very acoustics-heavy, sort of like ballad-ish. It's it's fascinating in the way that they've really seemed to recreate the style of those original OVAs by making it feel old. Huh. Yeah. That's sort of an interesting contrast to go with Megalobox, then. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's really trying as hard as to seem old still, while Megalobox is thrown way far into the future. So then, it's another dad series. We have Golden Kamui, which you uh, watched, right? I did. Okay. Alright, so Golden Kamui is the story of uh, Immortal Sugimoto, who is a uh, war veteran. And he kind of stumbles into this secret plot where a whole bunch of Ainu gold got stolen and uh, the, the guy who was behind it hit it and he got arrested and he printed the map to where this gold was as tattoos on the bodies of a bunch of death row inmates. Oh, which is oh? something else. And Sugimoto kind of stumbles into this and wants to try and find this Ainu gold to try and get some of it to um, pay for his deceased friend's girlfriend's, uh, I think I think it might be eye surgery, but he's trying to do a good thing by tracking down this uh, this gold. 
and he runs into this young Ainu girl named Asaripa, and the two of them basically form an alliance to try and get back the gold, because uh, Asaripa was one of the Ainu villagers who who this gold was stolen from, so she wants to return the gold to uh, to her village. Okay, and uh, to just real quick, like, this is a period piece around the uh, the Russo-Japanese War, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I, I forget, like, I forget around what year that is, though. So we're looking at, like, early 20th century. Okay, okay, so like early 1900s then. Yeah. All right. Alright, yeah, so it, it's basically about these two uh, going around and running into these extremely weird people that have these tattoos on them, and either copying the tattoos off of them or killing them, and, so that way they can complete the map and track down the gold. But it's also about the two of them eating delicious, authentic Ainu cuisine, and enjoying <laughs> themselves, and being goofballs. Because uh, one of the show's biggest strengths that it took a bit of time to find is uh, the manga does this a lot, is that everybody has these really good, goofy reaction faces to a lot of the stuff that goes on in in the show. Mm -hmm. And it took a bit of time for the manga to figure out how to properly adapt that. Okay. Yeah, I heard some, like, early things like, oh, it doesn't seem to have the same charm, but by the end I saw a lot more, like, reaction faces coming out of Golden Kamui. Yeah, it it took a bit of time to find its footing, but I'd say it's a, a pretty fun show overall. It's it's got a lot of extremely eccentric characters <laughs> that are just yeah. It it's a it's a very fun sort of show about like these characters on this journey meeting running into these strange people and just it's got a lot of humanity to it, even though all of these characters, including our protagonists, are very kind of off about them. Okay, because, uh, before going into this, like, I understood that it had a story, but, like, Golden Kamui, for me, based on everything I've seen, is just a series of reaction faces while three dumbasses, like, almost get themselves killed in the wilderness. I mean, yes, that is exactly what the show <laughs> is, and it's great. <laughs> and, yeah, like, I, I didn't end up catching up with this because I just ran out of time, but it did remind me I do have the first two volumes that I need to read. So maybe that'll be how I experience it. But it's cool to hear that it's good and, like, the anime did eventually figure itself out because there is a second season coming out, I think, fall? Yep, fall. Yeah, so pretty quick behind, so, yeah. Yeah, just I just want to throw out a couple of disclaimers about this because it's still mm -hmm. well, a fun show. It still has some problems about it. Like, apparently, for some reason, they skip over some chapters in the manga so, while I think it's a good thing because I haven't read the manga, I feel like manga readers do not enjoy the show as much because they're skipping over some stuff. Okay. And the other thing is that bears in this show are realistically 3D animated, and it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. But I think personally it works because bears are fucked up beasts from hell. <laughs> And that shows that, uh, that is the most animated way that you can show that bears are fucked up beasts from hell is making them <laughs> terrifying 3D realistic, whereas everybody is, has, is 2D and so, and somewhat stylized. <laughs> cool. But some people, some people do not like that decision. Right. And then the other thing is that there is a very, uh, problematic character in this show. 
like, problematic and, like... Uh, it's a character that might be trans that tries to make herself more beautiful by eating the body parts of other people. Uh, mm, okay. All right. I, yeah, I think it's important with that is like make to be specific on what that kind of disclaimer is. Yeah, that sounds a little iffy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thankfully that character only shows up in one episode so far, but shrug. Yeah, I guess keep that in mind if you want to get into it is there there may be some unsavory depictions of this particular trans character. Yeah. But overall positive? Yeah, overall I I enjoyed the show a lot and I'm looking forward to season 2 and I like watching these dumbasses bumble around. <laughs> um who's the who's the third in their group? Has he joined the cast yet? He joins very early on, but he is a completely worthless human being. <laughs> right, but I feel like all of the most comedic bits seem to feature um is it uh Shiraishi? Yeah, I believe it's Shiraishi. Yeah, yeah, he joins up like a couple of episodes in, and he's uh, <laughs> he's certainly something. Yeah, like the most vivid pictures I have of like uh, Asirpa and uh, Sugimoto are like kind of badass, and then I feel like the only thing I've ever seen of Shiraishi is like getting devoured live by wild animals. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and now, hmm. Uh, usually, I put this at the end because it's like buck wild to talk about, but I've been really down on Yu Gi Oh! Brains lately. <laughs> yeah, it's starting to show some problems. Yeah, Yu Gi Oh! Brains has more fully committed, I'm gonna say, to the sins of Zexel. <laughs> so, uh, last time we were here, uh, we had ended the first arc. Or at least we were right near the end, where uh, Playmaker finally defeated Revolver and saved all of the people from being cyber-deleted. Also, the entire internet from being destroyed just to destroy the Ignis. Right. Because AI may one day rise up, so what if we destroyed the entire internet instead of allowing that to happen? What if? What if? So, yeah, so the second arc... Uh, we get introduced to a second character with an Ignis named Soul Burner. So now the primary cast is Playmaker and Soul Burner, both who get to have special Ignises that make them impervious to losing. And they're fighting against, I guess, a variant of the Illuminati. And this entire arc is just about gaslighting these traumatized teens and telling them that their like trauma isn't valid. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, like, Soul Burner has this whole fight. Okay, so, like, as far as previous characters go, the rest of them are cops. Owie's a cop now, and so is Go. They're all bounty hunters trying to get the Ignis for SOL technologies for whatever purpose they have. They're probably going to use it to, to blow up the internet or whatever. And then we have this other group that we know nothing about yet. They're like some secret organization of, like, brainwashed, genetically created duelists, I guess? I have no idea what you'd call Bowman other than, uh... <laughs> so, first off, we have all of the cops now. So, like, 
Soul Burner shows up and he's like, I'm going to help also find all the Ignis and figure out the, you know, the traumatic parts of our lives that we've forgotten and get back oh, for right. vengeance. We, we did mention the thing that, uh, that draws Playmaker and I back into this mess. Oh, right. So, <laughs> at the start of the series, Playmaker's friend in real life, uh, Shoichi's brother, who was part of the Ignis Project, has his soul taken via the internet. And so Playmaker's like, guess I'm back on my bullshit. And so he goes into Link Vrains again to save him. And then Soulburner's there. Yeah. Yeah, so all the duels are like, Soulburner fights against Go, and Go is now like, you think it's hard being tortured as a child and traumatized? Well, I had it bad too. I had to work a lot to get to where I am and be an entertainer for the kids because I'm an orphan. Which, like, Go, <laughs> please don't. Shut up, Go, please. And then Owies is like, Owies doesn't have quite the same thing. It's like, I want to finally prove my use. And then it's like, nope. Uh. And then Bowman, the new villain, I guess, or like the new villain underling that we reach, um, tells Playmaker that he is the real, um, he is the real Yusaku from real life. And during the Ignis experiment, his consciousness got sh shoved into the internet, and this fractured version of him, that's an AI, ended up in his body, and that's Yusaku. Again, just a gaslighting story of, like, your experiences aren't real and they're mine, <laughs> which is, like, the most fucked up thing. Except that was fake! Well, we don't know if it's fake! <laughs> that's the thing, like... I don't know anything about the plot anymore. Where is it going anymore? And then also there's a, there's a, there's like an edgy bounty hunter named Blood Shepherd who looks exactly like you'd expect and shoots a real virtual gun. God, I hate AIs because an AI got my mother paralyzed <laughs> by accident. Also, he's a real cop. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a nightmare. But yeah, so Yu-Gi-Oh! Ranks is like... I don't know. It's like stop. It's just not fun anymore because it's so predictable, and not in like, oh, I know what's going to happen in the plot. It's like, oh, well, of course, Playmaker and Soulburner have to win all the time, so there's no drama in these duels. The stakes are too big for us to follow, and also for there to be any like interesting narrative to it. It's just. It's an absolute mess, and it's, it is really everything I dislike about Zexel, where it's like, you know exactly how things are gonna go, and of course, all the other characters that they've built up for a season, they have no place in the story, because they aren't, you know, gifted this magical thing, like the Ignis. So it's just, uh, it's a real disappointment for an idea that's so cool. Yeah, cyberpunk card games should be cool and not lame like this yeah it's just it's a real shame and we just got out of a man it should have been a cool episode it was like a prison break for all the knights of hanoi but it was in fact a recap episode truly the greatest betrayal i i can at least say one amusing thing about brains and that is that for some reason they're trying to bring back old methods of summoning monsters such as Ritual Summon and Fusion Summon, and it's hilarious that they're trying to bring those back. If they're trying so hard to make Playmaker's deck good, like, in the show and in the trading card game. Like, 
They're just throwing all the ideas they have about the cybers type at the trading card game and seeing which ones stick, because like a lot of other protagonist decks, it's just kind of bad. And so they're really trying to figure this out, and they just can't, and so they keep throwing new stuff at it. Oh, yeah. Go has the best monster archetype ever. It's wrestling dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, he has dino wrestlers. And, like, still... Owie has the most competitively viable, like, currently, deck in the format. Like, it's the third strongest or something. And yet she's not allowed to win a duel. She lost in one episode. She lost in one episode. Even Go got two episodes. It's disgusting. But yeah, so, like, I, I'm going to watch it all because I have, like, a perverse necessity in my mind to have seen all of the Yu-Gi-Oh! content. But, like, it's not fun anymore because it's, like, fallen into all of these tropes. That just, yeah, Shin Yoshida is a bad series composer, and he needs to stop. I'm going to drop brains if the show tries to pretend that Brave Max is a character. Yeah, so next episode is like Brave Max versus Ghost Girl. And Ghost Girl's cool, and again, also has a competitively viable deck. But if Brave Max wins, I'm gonna fucking shit my pants. Like... Oh god, that reminds me that Emma has never won a duel. Nope. She sure hasn't. Uh, She's the new My Valentine. Man, they sure write her like that, too. <laughs> but Shin Yushida has written all of the worst parts of Yu-Gi-Oh! Like the Atlantis arc of the first Yu-Gi-Oh! And Zexel. Oh my god. And the last season of GX. It's all, it's all terrible. Oh my god. <laughs> it's all bad. Anyways, so that's my thoughts on Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, tune in for my Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast where I scream for three more hours. About Zexel. That <laughs> we gotta keep moving, though. We gotta keep moving. <laughs> and we're it. moving right into- Ooh! Ooh! No, we're moving right into Darling in the Franks. Darling in the Franks is stupid! <laughs> it's... Yeah, like... So, one issue, I think, with Darling in the Franks is because it's a high-profile series- Everyone feels like they have to have a take on it, even if they're not watching it. So I feel like a lot of misinformation was thrown around and just a lot of like uninformed opinions based on third hand opinions <laughs> came out of it. So, you know, it had a lot of tiring discourse behind it. So let's get the record straight on what Darling in the Franks is. Darling in the Franks is a show that struggles to find its own identity for 24 episodes because it's never quite sure what it wants to be. Because for the first arc, it's, oh, the main character has to enter the robot. He has to get in the robot, but we have to have drama about he can't be in the robot because he can't pilot with Zero Two for some reason because stupid society, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's because he can't get it up. Oh my god. But then he gets in the robot, and then the show gets better, because it's about the drama between these robot pilots and their interactions, and it's about Zero Two kind of growing closer to the cast, except then it's revealed that, oh man, Zero Two's kind of fucked up, because she's kind of been alone all her life, and she's afraid to open up to other people, and then Hero remembers that, oh, hey, I met Zero Two as a kid, and because I ingested some of her blood i couldn't pilot with anybody else and things have gone terribly for the both of us ever since then but now we're back together and now we have a magical power up and everything seems great now and then 
after that, it's not about robots at all. It's about these kids kind of growing independent from their fucked up hell society, where everything's indoctrinated and all that. Oh, it seems like the show's getting better because it's these these characters growing independent and doing cute teen things. And then it all goes to shit. <laughs> Okay, so I, I after um after the incredibly Eva-esque backstory of Frank's got revealed, I binged through the last batch of episodes and for no reason it decided it wanted to be post time skip Gurren Logan for the end. Alright. I don't know why, because it had a pretty good thing going for it right then and there. It could have had oh. These kids were going to rebel against the society where their roles have been decided since their birth. They don't have any freedom or choice or whatever. They're only viewed as worker people and not as actual humans. And that's a pretty good theme, I think. But then it's, nope, surprise, the Illuminati from space are were the actual ones controlling everything the whole time. And actually, the Klaxosaurs are dinosaur people and they were the good guys. And now we have to work together to fight the, the fucking space Illuminati that are definitely not the anti-spirals from Gurren Logan. God. Cool. Uh, I, I gotta take a breath for a moment. But yeah, other than it just completely going off the rails at the end, it also ends in a really weird way with all of the characters settling down, starting families, and having babies? It's really weird and seems kind of out of place. Well, I... Look, from what I understand, it has two major messages by the end that it didn't build up to. Uh, One, please keep having children. We don't want to die out. And two, uh, environmentalism is good. Yes, both of those happen. I mean, the environmentalism thing was kind of there from the beginning. But the baby-making thing is just really weird and seems out of place. Have kids, uh, please. It just feels so half-hearted at the end because it had so many solid character moments in the episodes before everything went to shit, and then it's just like, nope, everybody's together now, and they're all having normal families and shit. God. So something went wrong at the, like, conception level you think like it's a case of you'd have to start everything over and rebuild it to make this a good show it's definitely the beginning and the end that are the problems with this show (laughs) because it takes too long for hero to get into the robot and it just didn't need to turn into post time skip gurren logan at the end also, Zero Two becomes a giant robot. Oh, that's cool. There's also that. <laughs> like, she becomes the giant robot. She's just really huge in space <laughs> for some reason. Well, all right. Okay, then. Uh, d- Darling in the Franks is a fucking mess. <laughs> please, please. Yeah, that's I, I think that's the one consistent thing I could find from seeing reactions to it. Is it's just... It's a real uh, mess that really fumbles in all of the themes that it wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Please. <sighs> oh, God. What, what a mess. Oh. 
at least Little Witch Academia and Space Patrol Luluco were good. Yeah. Well, I mean, from what we found out, Trigger doesn't actually didn't actually have that much to do with Darling and the Franks as far as plotting. Yeah, that is something that I feel like people spread a lot of misinformation about. Yeah, so I think we can still look forward, you know, in a positive way towards um, SSSS Gridman. Yeah, I hope that turns out to be good, because I like a good toku anime. Yeah, so we'll see about that. That's next season. Yep. But until then, we've got Darling in the Franks. Huh. <sighs> <sighs> okay, better robot show. Definitely a better robot show. I want to hear about Gundam Build Divers because I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about catching up for the season. So Gundam Build Divers is basically dumb kids having fun online with Gundams, and it's pretty great and charming for what it is. Okay. Yeah, it actually makes really good use of it being online as a setting because... Not only do a bunch of different people have a bunch of different avatars, there's also, like, furries, like how you'd expect if you set a show online. Right. But, uh, it's about, there's a plot, I guess, but it's more about, oh, it's these kids having fun adventures with their gunpla online and making friends and doing good, and doing really goofy fun stuff, like going to the Bear Guy Festival. (laughs) Ah, cool, there's a Bear Guy Festival? Yeah. Oh my god, that's yeah. awesome. Is it just like a bunch of fights with bear guys? No, but they everybody wears like bear guy heads over on their uh, their <laughs> avatar models. It's great. all that rules. Yeah. And also like, oh, we're going to have a party online. We're going to have an online party where we drink fake wine. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. Wow. It's very silly and makes good use of its its onlineness, I think. But um, it's just really, really fun, and it's very much, oh, Gunpla are really cool, and you can, you know, build Gunpla and make friends because of your bond with Gunpla and, and all that stuff. But the thing that kind of frustrates me the most is that, like, there is a better main character than Riku, who is generic shonen protagonist. One of the characters that, uh, that joins his, basically his squad is named Koichi, and he basically... Apparently, the Gundam Build Fighters thing was a thing in this universe where you fight with your gunpla. Like, you you make your gunpla come to life and you fight with it and they take battle damage and all that stuff. And Koichi is a part of the generation who played that. And he kind of got burnt out on, like, hanging out with and being friends and doing gunpla stuff. Because everybody just kind of slowly left that system for the the online game well okay so just to fill this in real quick uh i now understand why they would have had to move online because i remember at the end of gundam Bill fighters all of the minofsky particles disappeared in the final battle because it was a battle in like that basically took part in real space as well that rules so they can't do the normal gunpla thing anymore because all the particles are gone That's incredible. Yeah, they basically used up all of the technology for it. Okay, continue, though. Yeah, but basically he's just kind of, like, burnt out and kind of, you know, depressed that he lost all of his friends to it. But because of, like, our our protagonist, he kind of gets back into Gunpla and hanging out and having friends. And he actually has a relationship with the villain of Season 1 who was also part 
of that whole thing of, oh, everybody kind of left doing this and and everybody just went over to, to, to the to the online gunpla thing and he's kind and he's like, oh, this isn't real gunpla, <laughs> but he actually has like a real connection to the villain and he would make a better protagonist because it's just like him getting back into his hobby because of like the youth of today. Well, OK, I can't even say the youth, but it's just like these these middle school kids kind of get him back into to, you know, gunpla and. He just seems like a better protagonist because he's just sort of, like, maybe more relatable. He seems like he has more of an arc to him. Yeah, he definitely feels like he has more of an arc to him than generic shonen protagonist Riku. Okay. Also, the the female lead may or may not be Aura from Dot Hack. Oh. 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 Well, alright then. I mean, it's mysterious white-haired girl who can't be found offline and can communicate with the gunpla. So mm. I'm pretty sure she's just Aura from Dot Hack. Cool. But yeah, it's it's a really fun show that has, you know, just a lot of really goofy characters and is it's just a charming little kids show and I feel like some people are disappointed that it's just a charming kids show. But I like it because it's a charming kids show. Yeah, that sounds great. It sounds like uh, you know, another Gundam Build Fighter sort of thing with a lot of charm to it. So yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll find the time to pick that up. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And now uh, I want to talk about Card Capture Sakura Clear Card Arc. So if anyone out there is interested in watching this and hasn't, know ahead of time because this will change how you watch the show. This is not a complete story. Oh. So this is like the first arc of a story. I don't know how much longer it is. Apparently the manga is continuing on and it's gotten farther than this by a while. But Coward Capture Soccer Clear Card Arc is like the first, I'm going to guess, half of a story. With the next half coming sometime. Not sure when. But um, yeah, so I think that's going to change how you watch it because I expected after 22 episodes to have a complete arc. And so I spent a lot of time wondering why things were moving so slowly. Like, it takes so much time for you to get a real sense of the villains and who they are and what their motivations are. And even up to the last episode, you're sort of getting these revelations about the scope of which the story is taking place in. And so knowing ahead of time that you shouldn't expect to have a complete story, I think will change how you watch it. Because I think it's still good. Uh, it has a lot of good throwback moments to the original series while still sort of having its own identity and story and the way that it's handling sort of its mythos and how it's connecting this arc to the previous ones. But yeah, like, you have to expect that this is going a lot slower just because it is going to take a lot more time to find the end. And I don't think they've announced when the next season is. So I guess I'm just going to sit here angry until it comes out. Did it at least come to a satisfying halfway point? Yeah, so the way it ended up working is sort of the back half is when all of the plot stuff starts happening and you sort of slowly get a bigger picture of what the villain's actions are, what they're doing, why they're doing it. And uh, episode 22 sort of ends on a good sort of revelation for the viewer and the character of Sakura that sort of says, you know, 
it really like outright states this is the first half of a story because it basically says like you know card uh, so soccer through this whole thing has been creating a new deck of cards with different powers and they explicitly state that like whereas the other cards that she had been using were created by the the person previously in charge of being the card captor these are being built out of her own magic it ends with this like statement that's like but this magic isn't enough and sort of sets the stage for a second uh, a second arc that is more focused on the villains and overcoming the adversity. Huh. See, I think it is a it, I think it is a good break. I just didn't know it was going to be a break until literally episode 22. I can see how that would come as a surprise. Yeah, so definitely uh it, it's just a it's a case of expectations go in knowing that it's not going to complete a story. And I think you're going to get more out of it because you won't spend as much time wondering why it's taking so long to get anywhere. Okay. But it is good and it definitely like, I think it does a good job blending the line between like fan service for, you know, the people who watch the original and still being accessible in a number of ways to, to new fans. All right. That's good to know. Yeah. And now let's talk about your other kids show this season, Layton's Mystery Detective Agency, Cat's Mystery Solving Files. All right, so this is set in the Layton universe several years after the end of the the original trilogy, the, the one that isn't the prequels, and it follows Layton's daughter, Catrielle Layton, as she just solves goofy mysteries around London, and it is a slice-of-life detective anime, and it's very lighthearted and very goofy and very fun. Uh, it sets the first half of the episode, you know, giving you the clues that you'd need to solve the mystery. And literally at the co- at where the commercial break would be, it would be, okay, here's all the clues to the mystery. Can you figure it out like Cat can? <laughs> and then after the commercial break, it does the usual latent thing of revealing that it was a lot of horseshit in sometimes in really incredible ways. And it's... It's a very frustrating show to watch. Because, okay, well, first off, they flat out reuse some of the cases from the game in the show. Okay. And that's why it's frustrating to watch for me. Because it's, I've already seen these mysteries before, even if they play out slightly differently, the eventual solution is the same. And the mysteries that they pulled from the game weren't particularly interesting. Okay. So, I, I started playing the game specifically because uh, of the anime. How many cases are there in Cat's game? I want to say it's 12. Okay, so I could see over, I think this is supposed to be a 50 episode thing, where they would slot in some of those, then. I mean, they've already done, like... Like, they don't do any of the the first few cases. Okay. Oh, it, okay. It, like, okay, you're playing the game. It's basically, they're doing all the cases involving the seven dragons. Okay. So, like, sort of the big plot ones, as it were. Uh, I, I hesitate to call that plot. Like, the plot really only comes up at, in the very last case of the game. Right, okay, so, but the, the interconnected ones. Yes, the, the ones that have some sort of connection to them. And 
I don't even think they're called the Seven Dragons in the show, so they're kind of just dropping that whole plot point. Mm, okay. But it's just those cases, but they they tweak the circumstances surrounding those a bit. They're just the same solutions with no changes to them, and that's not interesting to me at all. But when they do do original stuff, it has been very entertaining and very Leighton-esque. Like, the second episode has a cursed dress that if you wear it, you get possessed by the devil? (laughs) No, it gets better. It turns out that the dress is made out of hallucinogenic plants. So if you're (laughs) near the dress, yep. So you start to hallucinate stuff. So the guy who brought in the dress hallucinated his dead wife. Uh, Oh, all all right. And everybody pretended that his dead wife was still alive to make sure that he was happy. And it was the most latent ass ending in the game because it turns out the person who made the dress was actually the mother of the of the man's wife, and she was also hallucinating the daughter. <laughs> okay. It's so latent and so good. And they just don't they just don't do that enough. That feels like it's the entire plot of a latent game, right? Like that's the con- that's the finale and not just like a story. <laughs> Yeah, it really could be, and it's great, but they don't do that enough, and they've been using cases from the game. But they also introduce plot stuff that wasn't actually in the game either. Like, a real plot that could happen, which is that uh, it, it involves Leighton and Luke, and it's basically them, they left to go track down these mysterious relic stones, to see where they all come together. And this episode reveals a plot twist that's offhandedly revealed at the end of Layton of, of the game that has nothing to do with anything that makes it feel like there's going to be another game in the series that explores that possibility. And that episode felt like a buildup to this game. But I don't actually know if they're actually going to announce a second cat game. And it would be really frustrating if oh, the only way you're going to get all these plot answers to stuff that was unanswered in the game is is watching this anime that has no official subtitles. I assume that just because of how things with Level 5 have worked, it's all going to come out at the end, not like Netflix style, but like, oh, you'd buy the Blu-ray for it, kind of like um, the, the Leighton movie. Like once they've been able to dub it and sort of like give it that Western Lupin, or Western, um, like, Professor Leighton brand. That would be nice if they did that, because right now the subs are like three or four episodes behind, so I'm unsure how much I'm going to be able to watch of it next season. Okay. And like, uh, I've seen some some stuff from it, and it does seem like it's trying to be really creative when it's not using things from the game, which seems really nice. So, I don't know, maybe as a whole it's going to be a lot different than watching it week by week. I mean... Probably, but because of the nature of every case is solved in one episode except for the main plot, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's meant to be watched week to week. Sure, so, but like, as far as the actual plot part ends up. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I'm hoping that the subs do catch up and they do start doing more original stuff because that's been the most enjoyable parts of the show. Mm -hmm. But yeah, 
usually the the original stuff is it's very hit and miss, but when it hits, it hits hard. Okay. So yeah, it, it's a charming show. I just I wish it stopped pulling cases from the game. Oh sure, okay. And now, speaking of mysteries, it's time to talk about Lupin the Third Part Five. Heck yeah! So. Lupin the Third Part 5 has taken a very different angle in that they are sort of like movie-sized stories cut up into episodes. So, like, the first five episodes were all one story arc. And then it will have, like, a break where it's sort of like a throwback episode, sort of telling a, a story from, like, another Lupin part. And then goes back to, like, a five-episode story or something like that and continues on that way. They are longer, but still connected story arcs. Yeah, I I definitely like what it's doing, that they're actually giving a lot of thought to these, I guess, OVA-sized latent plots. And then they it seems like they are going to interconnect them, like, in the third major arc, uh both new characters from the first two arcs show up again, with it focusing more on the character from the first arc, Ami. But Albert does make a cameo in the latest episode, so it feels like they're gonna try and, you know, weave these characters together somehow. Right, so let's just do quick overviews of the plots, because they are, like, the most and least Lupin stories ever. They feel like they are, like, cut out of movies, where it's sort of, like, supposed to be a bigger story, but Lupin does even less thieving in these stories. Lupin does cool crimes. Well, he does. Okay, so he does. In- so in the first uh, arc, he does do stealing because he embezzles all of the money out of the Silk Road. Basically, <laughs> he basically takes out an entire like Bitcoin tr- like illegal trading operation. Yeah, it rules. And kidnaps the master hacker who built the the, the infrastructure for it. And then the Bitcoin group, like, basically set up an assassination game with Lupin to try to get all of the best assassins in the world to kill him. They dox him. It rules. Yeah, they dox him, and so they basically make a game where it's like, if you find Lupin and kill him, you can make bets on which day he's gonna die, and if you guess the right one, you get, a, you know, a certain amount of this huge pot that's put together. And so it's, like, a lot of internet surveillance of him and, like, assassins who all come and try to kill Lupin while he's trying to take care of this poor hacker girl who's been locked up in, like, an underwater vault for, like, ten years or whatever. It's a, it's a really fun story where Lupin kills every assassin in the world. Lupin and his two buddies Jigen and Goemon. Yeah, and Fujiko's there too, but... It's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I yeah. The only weird part about like the first arc is Ami's really weird fitting backstory. Yeah. And I think that'll just build up more. I assume that by the end, like a lot of these stories are gonna interconnect in a way kind of like um part four did. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for what incredibly ridiculous thing the last big arc is going to be given uh given what happened in part four Mm -hmm. and then our first side story is i believe a pink jacket episode and it's basically the story of lupon having to it being too smart to open a safe 
because the the key to it is that you have to be a moron with zero IQ to open it. And so it's just an episode of him trying to become so stupid that he can open the thing. And then he breaks into the vault anyway by making it overflow from eating fish. Right, so uh, he can't become too stupid because he's just a genius. So what he does is he becomes too smart by eating a lot of fish. And as you know, like the vitamins and oils in fish make are supposed to like promote brain activity. So they only they only expected someone to have an IQ from zero to three hundred. So he gets an IQ of three hundred and one and breaks the safe and wins. It's it's honestly a really nice episode after the heavy drama of the previous arc. Yeah, and despite the fact that it's like the villains of the arc are just like two idiot inventors, like they are so charming in a way that like makes it so it doesn't seem like you're laughing at them so much, you're like laughing along with them more often. Like it's not hateful. Yeah. And I, I will talk about this a little bit more, but like the the episodes sort of take on it it tries to take on the identity of these other series. So like this tries to be in a way like a lost pink jacket episode. Yeah. Just in the way it's written and the way that they do like sort of the comedy and stuff is very not like the modern stuff. It's like trying to evoke that older style. I, I'm guessing more so as like fan service than anything, but it's still like charming. It's still fun. Yeah, it's a nice way of showing like Lupin's roots while also doing its own original stuff. Yeah. So then the second Lupin story is one where uh, basically he is asked to steal a black book that lists all of the, like, crimes that the French police have committed, like, cover-ups. And he comes in conflict with a man named Albert, who is, like, the other person who learned thievery under, like, the Lupin name with him. Yeah, Albert is, uh, is basically Lupin's oldest partner in crime. Right, so it's, it's a weird thing where, like, it tells us that Albert and Lupin were both, like, inheritors to the Lupin name. Like, neither of them are actually Lupin III. They are just carrying on the legacy. Yeah. And Al Albert gives it up so that he can become a real thief, by which I mean work in the government, am I right? But, um... <laughs> uh, Lupin and Albert kind of work together near the end because a group of assassins appear to, like, steal this and, like, th hold it as blackmail over the government so they have free reign. And it's, like, really brutal in a weird way. Like, it's the most bloody and violent I think Lupin has ever been. Like, they just fucking murder people. Yeah, like, it. it's really jarring going from that to, like, one of the other episodes where Lupin just does his fake pistol that just pops out a flag, or Goemon just bops people on the head. Yeah, no, people are fucking dying and getting sliced in half. It's nutty. But I think it it's, does a good job of balancing sort of these more serious elements with so the same irreverent fun that Lupin has been. Yeah. I think the second bit does a good bit to establish Albert as a good rival and foil to Lupin. Yeah. Then we have our second side story, which is a Red Jacket episode. And is half Lupin trying to steal a collection of old cars, and also half of him desperately wanting to see Fujiko's boobs. 
Which is maybe the most Lupin episode. Right, like, it is the most classical sort of Lupin thing, I think, because he has become significantly less horny as, like, part four and part five have gone on. And this is him, like, at his most original horny. (laughs) And it's a weird sort of contrast to see, you know? But I think it's still entertaining. And then we have one side story that takes place in modern times where Goemon basically acts as surveillance at an anime convention. It's so good. (laughs) God, it's great. Everyone just thinks he's a cosplayer. It's a lot of fun. This little kid who dresses up as a ninja, like, looks up to him. It's It's such a fun, charming episode. And, like, Really gives some character to Goemon as, like, a goofball. Yeah, it's a good Goemon episode. It's really fun. Yeah, and then uh, we're into a new arc now, which is sort of connecting all of these stories together as we get into, like, real political intrigue kind of stuff, where, like, Ami, after the first arc, was taken to uh, a boarding school where the princess of some, like, East Asian country is also up there and... She gets kidnapped because there's this whole, like, CIA conspiracy in her particular country, because it's, like, halfway between, like, a traditional, older sort of civilization and, like, modernized sort of utopia. And it's this power play where they're trying to get the princess to to stand with the, uh, kind of the traditional side of the country through this coup that they're pulling on her father. And we're not super far into it, but it's, like, really interesting how they're connecting these characters together so far, and putting a real focus on Fujiko as a competent spy, and sort of, like, having her as a foil to Ami, because Ami is, like, you know, kind of this this hacker girl with not a lot of interest in using sex appeal, while that's sort of, like, Fujiko's code of conduct, is that she uses that to put people off guard. And then is able to do her stuff. And so they kind of have this discussion about using the assets that you have and being comfortable knowing that maybe you have a talent that someone else doesn't and it's okay to use those. Yeah, it it does a lot to make Ami more of a character because of the whole back and forth thing she has with Fujiko. And also it shows that Ami really does look up to Lupin a lot. And it makes Fujiko more of a character, too, which is nice, where, like, you know, it's not just, oh, Fujiko's the fan service, like, she's doing her own thing. She kills Isis with her boobs, basically, like, she took down an entire terrorist organization because they, <laughs> because they were horny. Yeah. Also, Lupin has a lot of shade to throw at America, and it's great. Yeah, it's surprising how much, sort of, like, real commentary they're plugging into this, so we'll see how far that takes it. Yeah. Yeah, for real. But yeah, I, Lupin the Third, I think, has been really fun. Um, it's not exactly what I expected, but you know what? Uh, Code Geass guy, you're doing great so far. Yeah, it's it's a really good show so far, and I'd say jump in if you haven't already. Yeah. Uh, so then, I have the one show that, that either of us dropped this season, like, for real. And that's Tata Can't Fall in Love. So I went into this because it's like the main staff behind um, Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun, which is a really funny sort of rom-com that's a lot about the twists on what you expect the traditional shoujo formula to be. And Tata-kun wants to be a more straightforward version of that story, but keeps getting lost in tropes that I think only hinder... 
the story it's trying to tell, specifically because they have, like, a major character whose only thing is, is a gross pervert. Oh! And, like, they, they want to make that fun, I think in the same way that probably Horikoshi would want Mineta to be fun, but it just doesn't work because there is a character behind that character who is interesting and compelling and has, like, goals and stuff, but there's so little of that displayed that it becomes very difficult to deal with the character being there because they are so loud when they are. So like Mineta. Yeah, so like Mineta. Very much like these characters, were they more subdued, would not be any different than like the horny dude from Inuyasha or something. Like those characters are still beloved because they have like a character outside of these things. But, you know, this dude in Tadakun does not have that, or at least doesn't show it enough to be interesting. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real shame. He just kind of, like, stuffed up the story, and the story is very much steeped in sort of the will-they-won't-they they sort of trope that will elongate a series <laughs> that it became a little frustrating to watch as well. So, like, there's a core there that I think is good, but I think it is muddied by a number of uh, questionable choices. But in terms of comedy, let's talk about a real banger of a comedy from what I hear, and that's Hinamatsuri. Who boy, Hinamatsuri is really, really good. All right, so Hinamatsuri is uh is about this uh this yakuza named Nita, and one day uh, a girl pops into his apartment named Hina, and she is an esper. She has telekinetic powers, and through some shenanigans. Uh, Hina is adopted by Nita, and it is basically one of the most character-driven comedies I've ever seen, which makes it really, really funny because it doesn't rely on, like, random humor, it just relies on character interactions and these characters being complete goofballs and such. So it's by the way that the characters mix more than, like, traditional comedy beats and tropes. Very much so. It's about these this the situations that they wind themselves up in and the way the characters approach these situations and such. And it's it's all really funny and and that. But also it manages to be a really good drama, which is it's I think that might be what makes part of this show so good is that it can switch between comedy and drama, but it does so by making both parts really really good. Like one of the characters in the show, Anzu, basically after her introduction, she, because no one takes her in like Hina, she winds up hanging out with these homeless people, and it manages to have such empathy for Anzu's entire situation, and she has like a really strong drama arc with her hanging out with these homeless people and being part of a family with them, and then it turns out that the homeless people have to get evicted from where they're currently quote-unquote living, and on and thanks to one of the uh, the people that the homeless people know, Anzu manages to get taken in by a family, and she kind of, like, adapts to that, and it's one of the sweetest, most heartwarming things out there because Anzu is such a good kid, and it manages to even derive some comedy from that, like, Anzu not really understanding how, 
like the value of money in that she didn't have anything and doesn't really understand the amount of money a normal person should have. But it's it's all just really, really good stuff. Okay, yeah, I I heard a lot of great things. And again, this is another show that I should probably get back to at some point this year. Because the, the clips I've seen have been really funny. I really like the art style of it, seeing more of it. And yeah, it, it like I don't think anyone has had anything bad to say about Hina Matsuri. Yeah, it's, it's just a good, heartwarming collection of humans and how they interact with each other. I really like it. It does some things in an unusual order compared to the manga, but I think it works out for the better. Okay. Awesome. It's definitely... Probably my favorite show that I watched this season. Okay. Wow. All right. That's, I mean, that's a ringing endorsement. I've heard one. That's, it, I really should get back to that. Seems like it's a, the biggest thing I missed this season. Yeah. I, I don't think I've laughed as hard as an anime as Hinamatsuri than I have in a while. It's, it's just really, really good. And then next up, monthly report in, I guess, on the today's menu at Emiya Family or, whatever it's called. What's Cooking at the Emias, which is just what I call it. The localized title is Today's Menu at Emia Family, but I like What's Cooking at the Emias better because it's snappier. Today's Menu at Emia Family sounds like a, but you thought there is never a girl online sort of kind of mishmash title. Yeah, so it, it's still basically what it was before. It, it comes out on the first of every month, so there's been uh, four episodes since I've last seen it since I reported back, but it's uh, it's still really just really, really good. It's got nice character moments between the, the fate characters. It's got actually usable recipes that you can use. The animation is all really nice. It's just it's just a lot of fun if you're a fan of fate stuff. Just You just get to see these characters not miserable and murdering each other, and they, uh, they just, you know, have a good time doing their daily lives and stuff, and maybe there's some heartwarming bits in it. I don't really have a lot to say about this show because it's, I only get 12 minutes a month, but it's just really, really charming. And it's kind of nice seeing UFOtable do sort of a softer art style and like, you know, not as much of sort of the, the 3D style work that a lot of their action scenes do. Yeah. You can tell it's UFOtable, but it is so distinct in how it handles itself. Oh yeah, for sure. Like comparing it to the Unlimited Blade Works anime, it is definitely a much softer animation style. But I think that really works for this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. It sounds like a fun time. Yeah, I, I just don't have a lot to say about it because it is what it is. Uh, real curious, how accessible would it be if I don't know the fate story? Um, like, does it do a lot of callback kind of stuff to the plot, or they? talk a lot about it, or is it pretty well divorced? It's divorced from it, but I feel like part of the appeal from watching it comes from the it, seeing these characters interact in a much more peaceful setting than the Holy Grail War. Okay. But if you want to watch it to, like, learn how to cook some neat stuff, <laughs> then go for it. Alright. Okay. Sounds good. Because I feel like the only people I've heard talk about it are people who do know about fate, so I was curious how embedded it was in sort of knowing the the plot of at least the original Fate Stay Night. It it definitely feels like it's more you have to know about the characters than the plot. Okay. Alright. Cool, cool. And finally, 
And finally, let's talk. We, we gotta talk about this. Let's talk Uma Musume Pretty Derby. I can't believe this show wound up being good. Uma Musume Pretty Derby is like... Everything about it makes it seem like it should be really, like, lifeless and, like, a you know, a commercial. Because it's not only commercial for this mobile game, it's also a commercial for uh, horse racing, <laughs> you know, real-life gambling. But it's wrapped in a package that's very earnest about its subject matter. Yeah. Like, the, the story that they tell around it and the way they treat these characters, there would be not no difference, but you could just, you could remove the horse thing and make it about just... Uh, like a track school, basically, and it wouldn't be any different. Like, there wouldn't be much to change about it. And I think that just shows how much they're trying to make this work in a way. Like, it's not just held up by a gimmick. The gimmick is sort of the, the foot in the door for a lot of people who are going to be like, oh, what's this dumb thing? And it turns out to be really genuine and, you know, like, kind of heartfelt in how it's trying to tell these stories. Yeah, one of the things I like a lot about this show is that it doesn't draw attention to its own gimmick. It feels like it's a normalized part of the world, which lets them actually tell stories using the characters in the show rather than just saying, oh, look at the gimmick. Here's the gimmick. Yeah, like, it is so committed to this very specific setup that they've made that, like, they're not just holding it on, like, oh, yeah, these girls are also horses, because uh, for the most part, they're just girls. Like, let's be real. They're mostly just girls. They eat a lot of carrots. They do eat a lot of carrots. They have horse ears, and they do put horseshoes on their shoes. But, like, they're just girls. Yeah. And it's just a story about about Special Week our lead girl, and the way she makes friends with people at her horse girl school for learning how to horse race. Uh, specifically, uh, Silent Suzuka, her roommate. Yeah, yeah, so Special Week is uh, a goofy country girl that she is very earnest, she is a little bit clumsy, but she wants to make her mom proud of her and be the best horse girl in Japan, and she runs into Silent Suzuka, who is a bit reserved, but she is uh, she is a rising star in the horse girl world, and she has a goal. Also, she wants to she wants to be inspiring to other horse girls who watch her and make them go, "Hey, I want to do this thing too," and you know, just be be a cool icon for them. Yeah, and so yeah, Uma Musume is about horse racing, but at the end of the horse races, instead of like trotting them out, they do an idol performance. <laughs> So they this do. is also an idol anime. <laughs> and they have to learn and sing and dance, and just, it is all sort of ridiculous, but they, they treat it with such heart that it's like, okay, yeah, I'll accept it. It's, it's fine. It's not trying to be tongue-in-cheek, it's just like, this is the way the world is. Which also ends up bringing up other questions, because apparently Uma Musume exists in a alternate dimension where horses don't exist. But the horses from our world have been reborn as horse girls. 
I, I think the term is that they inherit the souls of racehorses from our world. Right, but this, it, and it brings up a lot of questions if you think even a little bit about the, the world building, because you wonder, you know, were horse girls used like horses in this alternate dimension? Did this alternate dimension never use horses as, like, work animals or, you know, riding animals? Why do they still refer to it as horsepower and not horse girl power? Look, there are a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of questions that can be asked, but this anime doesn't care about that. It cares about telling, really just like an inspiring story about doing what you love, really. Like, it is in the same way that any sports slice of life sort of anime does. It's just about following your dreams and doing what you love to be happy. Yeah, and it manages to do that pretty well. It manages to, you know, really sell uh Special week in Silent Suzuka as as you know as good leads. Yeah, totally. It's charming. Like I think you know if you come into it expecting it to be really gimmicky or tongue in cheek, you're going to be disappointed. Like you you need to go in just expecting it to be like an anime, and it is. Like yeah, it it also manages to have some genuinely funny moments by playing its premise completely straight, such as. Special week running to school with a carrot in her mouth instead of toast. There's a lot of carrots in this. They 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 use carrots as wine. They use it as toast. There's a part where they serve Salisbury steak and just shove a carrot through it like a steak through a heart of a vampire. <laughs> like they're they're so dedicated to this very specific gimmick. And in a way that is funny, but it's not like laughing at the show, right? Like yeah, it... It knows it's dumb. <laughs> yeah, it is. It does know it's dumb. Like, making uh, making the phones slightly bigger so that they can reach the horse ears. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, so we are led to believe they don't have human ears, but so they have very long phones that reach up to the horse ears. Ugh. And I, like, I kind of like all of the designs for the, the racing uniforms. Like, all of them are so distinct in this very particular way that's, like, charming. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. They they managed to get some good costume designers for the horse girls. Yeah, they're all fucking idol-ass idols when they run, but it's charming. And, like, the dedication to real-life horse racing and horses is admirable in that all of the horse races... And some of the, like, non-horse racing things, like there's a food-eating competition, all of the uh, results are actual results from real races that happened in the lifetime of these different horses. Yeah, you beat me- I was just about to bring that up, you beat me to the punch, but yeah, it's- it's really amazing how much, like, <laughs> that research went into this anime. It's- ah, it's so refreshingly earnest. Yeah. And, like, there are a number of things where, like, Goldship is sort of, like, the weird horse that just does, like, weird <laughs> things. But you look at pictures of Goldship, the horse, and it's also just making weird faces all the time. So, like, I feel like, in some ways, like, the ways that these horses act are also reflected in the horse girls. Like, it's, it's wild, but, like, wow. It's just, it's, it's really impressive. Ugh. I, I know I saw a video of this once, but there's, like, a, a clip of uh, of Silent Suzuka 
walking around in a circle in the anime, walking around a circle in the game, and then they have a video of the real Silent Suzuka walking <laughs> around in a circle because she just can't sit still. It's great. That's really good. That's good. Again, it's just crazy. It's, it's crazy how much work got put into th- what what really does feel like a joke idea and that they've put so much work into, like, legitimizing it. So yeah, it's charming. Like, I feel like part of the reason this anime is the way it is is because the director is just really, really good at doing this sort of stuff about putting a whole lot of earnest effort into his productions because this show has the same pro- director as Hina Masuri, and Hina Masuri is amazing. Oh, do you want to talk about the the little uh, Easter egg in Hina Masuri? Oh, sure. Okay. So in one of the... <laughs> So in one of the episodes of Hinamatsuri, uh, Anzu, Hitomi, and uh, one of uh, Nita's mooks go to gamble on horse races, and the horses they're betting on are slightly altered versions of the horses from this show, the, at least of the main cast, and it made me so mad. <laughs> yeah, they're just parodies of Uma Musume horse names. Like, it's like super weak and like stuff like that. It's so good. Bless. Uh, I like this. Both shows are, are are really good, but for different reasons. Yeah. For all the surprises I think this season brought, Umamusume might be the biggest just because it may not have been the best show I watched, but it was like just for really running with its premise. Yeah. Uh, it was it was heartwarming to see the special week in uh, and Silent Suzuka, you know, accomplish their dreams, and it was it was nice to see. Uh, oh God, I just remembered a really good joke that this that uh, that Uma Musume pulled off, and it is um, it is uh, El Condor Pasa teaching Special Week uh, the wrong French as a joke. Bless you, El Condor Pasa. Oh yeah, because uh, they have a race with like the biggest French horse, and um, Special Week asks like, oh, what's hello? And, uh, Alicandra Pasa teaches her, like, don't underestimate me. And so Special Week just goes around to all of the French horses, accidentally insulting them by saying, uh, don't underestimate me when they're just saying, like, hi. And it's... Yeah, she, j- she just wants to say, let's have a good race. But she says, don't mess with me, I'm the best. Something like that, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's, it's really good. This show has some actual good jokes. Yeah. Again, I think it's just great that it could be divorced from its gimmick, but the gimmick just allows for, like, really more jokes and, like, narrative development than anything. Like, it it really isn't using its gimmick as the one thing holding it up. Like, I think other shows like this could. Like, it would be very easy to just hang on the, oh, they're horses gimmick and, like, try to make them too horsey. But they really, they really found a good balance. Yeah, yeah, they did. It's I can't believe I'd say I'd recommend this show, but I recommend this show because despite the majority of this show's cast being all girls, it's not horny about it at all. Yeah. Uh, oh, also, we're uh, capitalist shills, and that's why we support this show. <laughs> we love horse racing, and we love gotcha mobile games. <laughs> oh yeah, this game finally figured out uh, got a release date, or at least a release window, because it won the yeah. lawsuit. Hooray. And that's it. We really barreled through it, because 
man, if we had gone even any longer on all of the shows together, we would have ended up going four hours long. Whew. I still feel good about it because we got to like the heart of the stories, you know? With each of these, it was like, you know, focusing less on the details and more on the the overall scope of these shows. Cause I think that's that ends up being what's more important with a lot of these is what the style of the show ended up being and sort of what the messages wanted to be by the end of the whole thing. Yeah. Except for maybe Darling and the Franks. That's about the details. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> that happened. Uh, well, it's over. That's right, no more discourse is allowed in anime. We're, we are free of the discourse of Darling and the Franks. Finally. Never have to think about it again. <sighs> but yeah, I, I really liked this season. This season was good. Only one dropped show, and that's, for me, nine other shows that I at least, like, you know, enjoyed and think are good, if not great. Yeah, I, I enjoyed most of the stuff that I watched, too, and I'd recommend a good chunk of it as well. And honestly, it feels like both of us together still maybe haven't scratched the surface of some of last season. Like, there are probably still shows that were good and we didn't get to. I mean, I didn't watch Gun Kale online because I had too much to watch. Yeah, and same with a number of other shows. Like, I still didn't get around to Manchu Advance, even though I liked the first season of that. So I don't know, maybe eventually I'll get back to that. Like, it still feels like there's, <laughs> there's so much to uncover. Yeah, spring eight, 2018 is a dang good season. And you know what? Bad news. I think summer's an okay season all right now, too. Like... I've actually, I've accidentally stumbled into watching eight shows, and like, for the most part, I'm like, oh yeah, these are at least good. I don't know if I'll stick with them all the way, but like, you know, I haven't run into anything like detestable yet. Yeah, I've, I've picked up a couple of extra shows. I even grabbed something I didn't expect because, whoa boy, it wound out being surprisingly funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, so honestly, next season might be good too. Hell, oh, we're just, we're gonna be in so much trouble. Oh yeah, fall is looking pretty stacked as well, but at least there's going to be less leftovers to watch. Yeah, I that that's the thing that's killing you, I think, is that so many shows carried over. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Well, before we go then, we've got a little bit of fan mail. So, the first one comes in from the Toughest Bean, who says, The most interesting anime for the this season were updates to older titles, with uh, Gegege no Kitaro, Lupin Part 5, and Megalobox, not only because they were anime-exclusive, but also because of the sense of history. And I think that is something pretty interesting, especially in the case of, well, for the ones I've watched, Lupin and Megalobox. Megalobox just because it's a... it does act a lot as a foil to the original series, and, you know, is has, like, the same structure, but a very different philosophy behind it. You can see where the inspiration came from for the things that are there, but for also the things that aren't there, how to, you know, kind of twist the story for, uh, you know, a, a narrative that's 50 years old. Yeah, it, it does a good job updating and making the formula feel fresh while hitting the same plot beats as, as the original. At least that's what I've heard. Yeah. And uh, with Lupin, too, also, like, as we talked about, the, the side episodes that are just focused on telling out-of-time sort of episodes are, like, really fascinating in a way because 
they are like little time capsules of what Lupin used to be. And just the way he's changed so much since 2015 when they, you know, rebooted him after 30 years. So, like, it is fascinating to look back and see kind of the roots, you know, of, of what Lupin's character was and how he's developed and, I don't know, gotten more serious and <laughs> less horny. Yeah, and then even with that, it, at the end of the day, he still does feel like the same character. Like, he still feels Lupin. Yeah, he, he just feels more competent most of the time, which isn't a bad thing. Yeah, it's, it's less wacky hijinks and more, this man is an extremely skilled thief who just happens to be a huge goofball. Right, who also bumbles a lot. And then, I, I don't know a lot about Gegege no Kitaro, but like, the fact that this is an anime that has gotten an adaptation, like, every decade <laughs> since, like, the 60s or whatever, is, like, fascinating. And it seems like it does a thing that, like, the, the currently airing Banana Fish does, where it sort of updates the story for each passing, like, generation. Like, I think um, in Kitaro, they, like, use smartphones now and sort of have sort of updated the context of the story while still keeping it within the framework of the original uh the original plot gege no kitaro is another one of those anime from this season that i've heard is good but never watched because i had too much on my plate and i've heard that it does a good job of modernizing the stories that the original told yeah and no idea how long it's gonna be it's a you know it's a shonen adaptation so who knows if it's gonna do the full thing or whatever Previous ones have been, like, a hundred episodes, so... Oof. We'll see, but yeah, it, it again, it's another thing, oh, here it's good, I don't know if I'll ever get around to it, but, you know, I'm glad it exists, and I'm glad that people are able to enjoy it. And then, uh, I also got this essay from friend of the show, QB, which is more of, like, a, it's not so much a question, it's, it's really a... I guess it's a... Advertisement. We have a special report from the the leading name in Magical Girls, QB, who wants to talk about um, the current airing Precure season, Hugto Precure. Hugto Precure has been popping the hell off this entire season and shows no signs of slowing down, impressing old fans with its bold rejection of the usual conservative limitations of Precure, while also introducing new fans to why the original cures from 15 seasons ago were so cool in the first place. From an animation perspective, the talent Toei has been able to consistently assemble for the 15th season of Precure is unreal, and even going above and beyond expectations. Annual series are incredibly difficult shows to plan already, and what Hugto Precure has achieved in this season alone is a miracle. Off the top of my head, in the last 13 weeks, Hugto has rejected gender norms and declared that boys can be princesses if they want to, executed the funniest comedy episode in the entire franchise on apparently the most limited budget, Pulled off an episode with movie-level quality from a rising star animator by significantly skipping the ED credits for the first time in 15 years. Introduced the first mid-season Precure duo. Had the first Precures, White and Black, ignore the rule keeping seasons separate for a special crossover episode that had the same Dragon Ball Z-style fighting animation from 2004. Every week has utilized complex narrative threads with subtle callbacks that Precure has only rarely, if ever, attempted before. So it sounds like... That's going pretty well. Yeah, I I have heard from QB a lot that this, uh, this show is a real banger out there. Yeah, and it seems like Precure is generally a pretty on sort of series, despite being yearly. 
But it seems like this one, just because the particular staff behind it is willing to like kind of push the boundaries of the series in a way that is really uh, fascinating, certainly from outside to see sort of the stuff they're doing and hear about what they're doing. Like a lot of it is incomprehensible to me, but it's it's entertaining to hear about. Mm, yeah, like it, it sounds like really good stuff. But again, I have too much on my plate to watch more <laughs> stuff. And uh, Precure also is in another one of those things where uh, we, we're never seeing subtitles of it. So like you have to go through alternative means to be able to watch it. Oh yeah, fan subs. <laughs> well, unless they glitter force it, they could glitter force it. Oof, I I have no clue how that adaptation turned. Oh, um, what was it? Um, didn't someone recently buy all the rights to the Sabin products yes. or productions? Yes, it was Hasbro, I think. Okay, so depending on Has- how Hasbro handles it, we may see official Precure, which we haven't seen since 2004 with the original series. Huh. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, also, I want to point out that the um, the mascot animal for Hugto Precure uh, rules. His name is Harry Ham Harry, and he is a punk hamster who speaks with a Kansai dialect and wears a gold chain. Nice. It's pretty great. I think the last one, wa- the the last season was a bear that in the movie also ended up turning into a magical girl. So you know, that's also cool. Ah, of course. Yeah, Precure, Precure sounds nuts in, uh, in, like, all the best ways. But yeah, I think that's it for the se- I think that's it for Spring. Spring was really good. I was really happy about Spring. Before we go, I'm going to plug Kamen Rider Build. Kamen Rider Build is really <laughs> good. It's got a little bit of ending fatigue, but since I've, I watched it last season, hot dang, it's a really good show about, uh... Two dumbass martyrs trying to out-martyr each other, and they're being idiots, but it's also got great human drama in it, and it's got a strong anti-war message, and I I really like Kamen Rider build a lot. It's good. So, what's the, what's the gimmick behind this Kamen Rider? Uh, the gimmick behind this Kamen Rider is, is, uh, is little bottles, and he shakes them, and then the build, and then the driver goes, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> So like, but but like in previous ones, it's like ah, oh, gaming and doctors. Is there like a is there like a connecting thing like that? It's supposed to be build as in like physics and also building as in model kits, but it really doesn't <laughs> use that gimmick for anything and just does its own story. I mean, I guess the closest thing you could say is the primary protagonist is a science and has to grapple with. The, potentia- the potential of science being used the wrong way in wars and and the dark side of science and him grappling with that. There's that. Okay. That's interesting. All right, cool. Thanks for the plug. Yeah. Look, if if QB got to write a, a five-paragraph essay about Precure, I can let you plug something that isn't anime. Uh, it's just good. I just want to get it out there because I feel like more people should watch it because... It's pretty good. It does a lot of things a kid I did not expect a kid's show would do, such as showing the effects of PTSD. Wow. I think Common Writer is another one of those where like there just isn't a lot a big American audience for it because it's pretty inaccessible. Well, there was Common Writer Dragon Knight and the terrible dubs. 
And um, the Amazon Writers, I think, is available on English Amazon Prime as well. Oh, yeah. Amazon's is also available, but that's also a common Rider series literally written for adults. And for Amazon. <laughs> yes, that too. Weird. Okay. Common Rider, but it's all like armor made out of the boxes that Amazon sends out. <laughs> like the, uh, the, what is it, SMT4 uh, yeah, armor? Yeah, the- <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> Alright, but yeah, that was that was spring. Spring was really good. I'm s- excited for summer. Like, everything, at the very least, has been, like, decent, I think. Yeah. Nothing out- well, okay, there was Frank's, that was bad. But everything else has been pr- at least average. Yeah, and I think that, you know, of the handful of shows I'll probably end up sticking with from this season, there are some- I think there are some real hits, and there are some, like, surprises. I think- I think we may have been wrong about Review Starlight. I still need to watch the first episode of that and see where that goes, because it having connections to Penguin Drum, a thing I have seen, uh, makes me more interested in it. Yeah, it's- yeah, everything I heard about it was like, oh, it's like Utena again, and it's like, oh, oh. So that might be interesting, we'll have to see. But we gotta take care of some other stuff first. Like, plugs, where can people find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at at ZaneZero, X-A-I-N-Z-E-R-O. I'm tweeting about stuff that I usually like, and maybe that'll get you to check that stuff out. I have a lot of fun live tweeting either games or anime I'm watching. Alright. And, as always, you can find me at Chorpsaway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y, on Twitter. You can find me on YouTube under Chorpsway SA. You can find the podcast at Coco underscore Disaster on Twitter and at CocoDisaster.com, where you'll also be able to find links to our RSS feed, our pages on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. And you'll also be able to find a link to the text-only blog Vanilla Blessing that I run with friend of the show, QB, for other subjects that we maybe don't think fit the podcast. And other than that, I'll see you this season for a pair of real uh, bangers of single servings, I'm going to say. First of all, we're going to be looking at Eccentric Family 1 and 2 with a friend of the show, QB. Sort of, I'm going to say underrated, uh, like hidden gems of anime. And then for its 10th anniversary, I will be talking with the Jay of Spade and Future Friend about the live-action Speed Racer movie by the Wachowskis. Hmm. And comparing it to its original series and seeing how well it actually captures that. Because, if I remember correctly, uh, the original response to this movie was not positive, but I feel like it is definitely softened over the years. And I think it's interesting to see what maybe happened there. That is what I have heard, too, that this is a good anime adaptation movie. Yeah, that, like, everyone just hated for some reason. But, until then, I've been Chorps Away. And I've been Zane Zero. And this has been Coco Disaster. Sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs>